Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Sir Howard Bernstein. Being collaborative, I think it's important. Taking people with you, ultimately, it's about delivering change. Sir Howard was Chief Executive of Manchester City Council from 1998 to 2017 and he's credited with the city's rebirth following the IRA bomb in 1996. And he went on to do some amazing work such as brokering Manchester City Football Club's investment in East Manchester. And he brought the Commonwealth Games to the city, Metrolink, and lots of other things for which he received a knighthood in 2003. For me, Sir Howard Bernstein has always been a Manchester icon because when I set the business up one month after the IRA bomb, he was suddenly on the scene with Sir Richard rolling his sleeves up and getting involved with rebuilding the city. And it was a city that was going to have, I didn't know then, so much importance to me in my career. So here we are, 25 years later almost, and I've got the privilege of having a chat to him for an hour, which although we've spoken very often over the years, we've never really had time to have a chat and a cup of tea. It always strikes me that he's a man of honour and a big friend of the city. So Howard, thank you for joining me on the first episode of Series 2 of We Built the City. Nice to meet you again, Lisa. Thank you so much. It was really important for me to have you as my first guest on this series because on the last series you had a lot of calls on your time and I know that it was difficult for us to get anything in the diary. And we're eight months down the line now and we've done a lot of rebuilding of the city in that time. So you're an expert at building a city, so it feels even more relevant to have this conversation right now. So you're a born and bred Mancunian, born in Cheatham Hill, and you went to Juicy High School. I believe that you started your career by washing teacups when you joined the Manchester Corporation in 1971, I think at the age of 16. Was there a point at which you realised that you had much greater ambitions than washing teacups to be part of the leadership of the city? Yeah, well, that's probably the first day, actually, when I went to the council. <laughs> uh, I, I went in with a briefcase thinking that I was having look uh, for my name on a door and didn't get that. Uh, and I'm being handed a pile of teacups and a big bowl to go and watch. I, I wonder what it was all about, really. I think my first job, actually, was... In PR, I had to go and photocopy loads of invoices for the first two weeks. It was They were doing the audit, and that was my foray into PR, so I, I can relate to that completely. You've been attributed with Manchester's reinvention, and you've taken the city from post-industrial decline to one that helped to put us firmly on the global stage and have been responsible for securing billions of pounds of investment for the city. And when I came back from university at that time, photocopying the stuff in the office, when I looked out of the office, all the buildings were black, then we got the IRA bomb and some people said that in 1996 that was one of the best things ever to happen to Manchester in modern history. How did you feel when you first saw the devastation of the bomb that day? Well, like everybody else, um, a feeling of outrage really and wonderment that uh, that didn't create any fatalities. Um, but I think the story of Manchester goes before that really because when you actually evaluate what happened beyond the bomb, the speed at which the council in particular working with business recovered 
was clear about what it wanted to do. I think that of itself provided one of the clearest manifestations of, of what we were all trying to do uh, before 96, mm. actually. We were clear about what was right about the city, what needed to be improved, uh, how the city centre, as an example, functioned, where it was strong, where it needed perhaps a lift, how we needed to create more space for quality retail, as well as other commercial development. And because of that outrage um, and the need to plan the renewal of the city centre very speedily, don't forget, that was at a time when the Trafford Centre was just coming on stream. uh, And that was a a huge threat to the trading fortunes uh, of the city centre. So therefore, time was very much of the essence. We We were broadly clear about what was right and what was wrong with the city centre. So therefore, the terms of that international design competition, which was promoted with the endorsement of the council and the government of the day, became, in a sense, the route map to recovery. And if that route map was going to be successful, it would lead to further transformational change within the city centre. And one of the remarkable things of that period was the fact that almost within two years of the bomb exploding, we were refunctioning as a city with quite a lot of the big moves having been made and funded in that period of time. So Richard Lee said on the last series that it was because of that vision and collaboration and partnership, I suppose, at the time that you were in, in a good place to take the action that was required at that time. So those those things have been formed already. I agree. Uh, that's absolutely right. And more particularly, uh, recognising the need for uh, speedy, decisive action in a way which respected completely the severe leadership role of the council, but also the role of the private sector. You know, the whole notion of setting up a task force under the chairmanship of Sir Alan Cotshaw, uh, government involvement, as well as council involvement, of course, which I was privileged to lead, was also a manifestation of, of our ability to adapt our working practices and our models of delivery mm-hmm. to suit the circumstances of the day. And I think that's what we've been good at over all of that period of time where we've had public and private organisations working together for the greater good. That's always been very effective in Manchester, hasn't it? It has, um, because I think we were one of the pioneers at the time. I think Richard and I would describe as place leadership. You know, I never uh, saw myself just as uh, either the deputy chief executive or subsequently the chief executive of the council. I always saw myself as one of the leaders of Manchester, the place, because that's the only way I believe you can enjoy all the enthusiasm, the energy of all the stakeholders who have a profound role to play uh, in, in the transformation of the city by creating those platforms for them to participate and to bring their own distinctive energies and resources to the overall effort. And, and that place leadership role uh, has been, which has been a mainstay, I think, of the regeneration efforts of the council over the last 20 years are gonna become even more important, I believe, 
over the next 20 years as well. But I'm sure we'll come on to that. <laughs> we will. There's a lot to cover there. And I love this story that you went to London to ask the then Deputy Prime Minister, Michael Heseltine, for millions of pounds to help rebuild the city centre. And it was in the bank before you got out of the taxi at Euston. Is that a myth, is that a myth or is that true? <laughs> no, it, 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 well, it wasn't in the bank, but it, um, what, it took a bit longer to get to <laughs> yes, no but, but, you know, there is a classic example of a senior political leader um, who, um, in my view, is one of the few I've ever worked with who understood cities, you know, the importance of cities in terms of promoting national growth, the importance of cities in creating uh, the opportunity for all people who live and work there to uh, enjoy the benefits of success. Um, Michael was our principal person, custodian of, of our interests within government at that stage. You know, his was the predominant idea to go on an international design competition uh, in the aftermath of the bomb. Kept, wanted to be kept up to date with progress at periodic intervals, always got calls from how's it going, can it help? Uh, um, which was incredibly uh, encouraging. And of course, when we got to the end of the design competition and we selected the winner, there, there was the inevitable question, well, there needs to be some public money found to help this along. And I always remember it was about 98 million quid we needed, which was good value for money. And Richard and I went down to see him at his request in his office. He got on the floor. Uh, looked at all the plans, we explained the plans to him, what we would achieve, the sequencing, what it would mean for longer term change. And he said, well, how much is that? Um, and we said, well, actually, it's 98 million quid. <laughs> uh, and by the time we got in, I got out of a cab immediately after the meeting um, to uh, and arrived at Euston Station, I got a call to say, I've got the money, we'll have a press conference on Monday morning. Uh, and he just showed you what can happen when you've got senior political leaders who share the ambition yeah. to make things happen. And we never looked back from that day on. So were you and Sir Richard on the train back together then? Yeah, we came back on the train together. Uh, and he said, I can't believe he's done it <laughs> in, in all that. He's only been 20 minutes. <laughs> I said, well, you know, but at the end of the day, he was then Deputy Prime Minister. He was obviously a, um, a very strong proponent of Manchester within government. Um, but also, it was about three or four months before then that he brought the Prime Minister, John Major, uh, the day up to Manchester to yes. get a detailed briefing about what we were doing. Mm. And, and he said, look, I think what you're doing is absolutely brilliant. You've got my full support. And through Michael, you've got a very strong proponent within government who I'm sure um, will deliver all that you need. And that's exactly what happened. So what were you chatting about on the way back on that train then? Were you thinking, what do we do now? Probably how we're going to spend it. How are we going to spend it and open up, open up in 12 months? You mm -hmm. know, that was because I go back to the point, it wasn't just doing it right, which obviously is, is very important. It was also maintaining public confidence at the time that we would do it in the quickest possible time. Mm. And we set ourselves a target of having the city centre refunctioning again as within two years. Uh, and we just about got there, mm. just about got there. 
Uh, and that was an important part of, I think, the long-term success of the city centre. Yeah, it was it was incredible to see the speed of change in the city centre. And then that created even more momentum, didn't it, beyond that for some of the bigger or the, the other regeneration projects that you delivered on. I mean, the, the list is endless. The things that we see in the city centre now were mostly delivered uh, under your tenure. Um, yeah, you know, I remember being interviewed on the day uh, by ITN, I think he was, and the question was, well, you're reopening the city centre today, well done. So does that mean the job's finished? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, actually, if we've done this right, the job will never be finished yeah. because it will create sort of sustaining yeah. momentum for long-term change. And, you know, when, when you think at that stage, the economic boundary of the northern part of the city was effectively Cannon Street. Yeah. If you can remember Cannon Street. Yeah, it it can, I can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now it goes all the way up to the co-op uh, and Victoria Station. So that is the leap of faith, the, the, the you know, the, the change um, and, and moves that have been made to, to support the growth and development of the city centre. And that is entirely and exclusively linked to getting the, the intervention right yeah. to support the city beyond the bomb. Just to remind people listening to this, just some of the projects that you delivered on Piccadilly Gardens, Exchange Square, New Cathedral Street, and then Bridgewater Hall, obviously Sports City, which we worked on with you, which is now the Etihad Campus, and the Regen of East Manchester. Spinning Fields, again, we worked on with that. Uh, you championed the Metrolink's arrival, and now we've got the factory at St John's, which is going to be another incredible first for Manchester. So I know it must be a really difficult question, this, but I've got to ask it. What? project are you most proud of? I'm proud of all of them, if I'm being really frank with you. I think the one which gave everyone confidence, A, that we knew what we were doing, and B, that the city could uh, succeed in the face of the challenges at the time. I I think the the overall plan for the post-bomb, and I don't think it's just one project, it's a collection, a mix of projects, which I think was so crucial um, and which, of course, led over time to Urbis and yeah. the award with the Millennium support, you know, that came through the lottery, uh, which in turn has led to the whole co-op play around Noma. All of those things are absolutely instrumental in the growth and development of the city, but unless we got the core of that renewal plan right, then it would have been very, very difficult to have yeah. delivered that yeah. scale of change in the time scale that we have. Yeah, I can really see that. I was kind of getting all the jigsaw pieces in the right order, wasn't it, to some yeah. degree, to enable that to happen. And did you have a strategy at the time for not being overwhelmed or intimidated by the scale of what needed to be done? I was young enough then not to be worried about that sort of stuff. It was daunting. There were some daunting moments probably the most difficult two or three years of my life and and made the Commonwealth Games in comparison a, a, a sort of cakewalk because you were dealing with multiple landowners uh, all of whom had their own commercial interests to protect uh, trying to corral them into a common vision about how we wanted the city to change was was difficult exhausting and followed on by the big Harvey Nichols new cathedral city play, which 
you know, I thought we were going to negotiate with Harvey Nichols for 20 years. Uh, um, and finally got it over the line, <laughs> you know, after three years, very, very hard work. All of it was was quite daunting. But, you know, we never, ever lost faith in, in what we were doing. Uh, I enjoyed at the time unparalleled political support across parties that dissipated a little uh, in the period leading up to the Commonwealth Games. Uh, Richard was amazing um, in terms of his political leadership at the time. And I think we can all look back on that period as, and it's a source of great strength. And we can look forward, therefore, to our next challenges with even greater levels of confidence yeah. on the back of it, I think. We can't not mention the Olympic bid because I was in one of my first PR jobs then and we were producing the newsletter for the win newsletter or the lose newsletter. And we had to just like obviously drag out the one that was appropriate when we got the result. And obviously we didn't win the bid. But what was hilarious about that night is that like it was probably the best um victory defeat in a way that I've ever seen because we acted like we'd won that night didn't we I mean that song well, I, 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 <laughs> I was in Monaco uh, right. uh, believing my own rhetoric until the last moment thinking that we were going to win um, and I'm being absolutely heartbroken in the aftermath that matured me a little that experience mm. I think if I'm being frank and it was never listen to what people tell you all the time uh, we had a we had a damn good party though regardless I do yeah remember. well you might have done you might have <laughs> yeah. had a good party I yeah sorry you had to take one for the party. team on that <laughs> the Commonwealth Games was um was was far more we learned a lot on the back of the Olympics yeah. and we deployed all of that experience very effectively for the bid on the Commonwealth Games beating London to secure the English nomination, which we did six or seven months after, uh, was uh, was a great uh, fillip for some of us. Mm. That bid was led by Sebco, if you remember. Yeah, I do, yeah. Uh, yeah. On behalf of London. Uh, I think we beat them about 25-3 or 25-4. Mm. Um, and then moved on to secure uh, the, the, you know, the international nomination. I, when, when we were signing the host city contract, I remember saying to Graham, who was at the top table with me, now that we've won it, can we give it back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a massive challenge to, to pull that off, but it was a summer never to be forgotten. It was, it was amazing. Uh, far more amazing than I ever believed was possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and again, that was challenging because at the end of the day the event we bid for was not the event we had to put on mm. that that was the point you know the 2000 sydney olympics transformed people's understanding and expectations about what a world-class multi-sports event would actually entail you know nothing quite like the commonwealth games that was organized in uh, victoria in canada i think in 94 uh, Kuala Lumpur in 98 took the Commonwealth Games up to another level and of course 9-11 had a profound impact on security costs so we just didn't have the capability, the access to resources to deliver what was required and, and needed to forge new national partnerships with, with Central Government Sports Council uh, for England as it was called at the time 
in order to deliver it. Well, deliver it, we did. Gosh. There's somebody that lived, lives near me who was clearly a volunteer and doesn't want to forget that experience because she's still walking around in that purple tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we, she loves it. <laughs> yeah, and again, you know, when you, we, we were so lucky to, to have people like Charles Allen, you know, Charles, who was fondly remembered by many in the media industry, Manchester, I'm sure you as well, when he was chief executive and then executive chairman of ITV Granada. You know, he played an absolute blinder in, in, in creating that strong, independent leadership, the way he engaged national government and the international federations. And also the way he, he really supported the notion of fostering, you know, community participation and community yeah. identity with the Commonwealth Games as well. You know, I can remember walking around with him the day the Games were due to open and walking around the immediate vicinity of where the stadium is now. Uh, and, and he stopped and, and saw an elderly lady on one of the houses fronting Ashton Old Road, I think it was. And she was doing a step, cleaning a step and stoning it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and... He, he said, thank you for doing that. And she st stood up and looked, you know, well, we've got visitors, you know. We're going to have visitors to this city. Yeah. Uh, we've got to look our best. And he turned to me and said, I think we've cracked it. Oh, that's such a lovely story. I was also very lucky to be invited to the dinner to mark your retirement as chief executive of the city council. And it must have been the biggest leaving do that Manchester has ever seen. <laughs> it was an amazing night. It was actually very special, very emotional. And it must have been for you and for your family. So how did you feel about finally deciding to retire from arguably the most important role in, in Manchester? Um, I, I did it for two reasons, really. The first was... I was pretty exhausted, if I'm being honest, because the whole effort around not just doing my bit in Manchester, but also creating and implementing the devolution agreements in the period leading up to the mayoral uh, election and health, social care. I did that mm. almost by myself for 12 months with yeah. a lot of support from, from a whole range of uh, of colleagues so I was pretty exhausted um, and I think the second thing I just wanted to go back doing things which I love and that is regeneration at one level you know while I had the I think I had still gas left in my tank as it were and I wanted to go back and just do that stuff full time and just free myself from the rigours of bureaucracies and and managing change. And, and I think it was the right thing for the city mm. uh, as well, and for Greater Manchester. You know, a new mayor coming on board. It was the right time, I think, to, to, to break. And do you ever feel now, though, that knee-jerk reaction if something happens, that kind of that protectiveness, or that you want, to, you want to jump in and you have to hold yourself back, or do you just think, that's not my job anymore? No, you, look, you know... I, I'm, I'm a monk. Anybody who knows me knows how 
how much I care deeply about the city. So everything that goes on is still almost a personal <laughs> issue uh, for me. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, I miss certain things. I miss working with certain people. Uh, but at the end of the day, I can still help play a role where I can. Uh, and I do try and do so judiciously. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we've got Richard, we've got Andy. Um, they haven't done a bad job these last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the city will continue to go from strength to strength of that I'm not any doubt at all. So unlike Alex Ferguson, and I'm sorry for mentioning that because I know that you're a big bloom, we'll come on to that. You vowed that once you left the club, you'd never go back. So when you walked out of there for the last time, have you never been back? I mean, you, you made that commitment. Why was that so important to you? Oh, no, I, well, to, the, we closed the town hall after I yeah, left. Well, exactly, actually. yeah. <laughs> no one's been back. And that's going to remain closed for many, many years, so I'm not yeah. sure who's going back uh, when, it re, re, when it reopens. Luke, you know, I'm still involved loosely around around the edges. I chair the Factory Trust, which is a huge, significant project for the city mm-hmm. and for the wider region. Uh, I still play a part around Northern Powerhouse. I'm still involved heavily in East Manchester, uh, through the football club in Manchester Life, um, and, and through my Deloitte role, yeah. which I enjoy hugely, mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to play a part um, in in supporting a range of regeneration plays, not just uh, in Greater Manchester. I chair the delivery board in Radcliffe as a yeah. as yeah. a resident of Berry, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, but also um, in different parts of the country. And abroad, you know, we're doing a lot of work in, in the Middle East through Deloitte, as well as other parts of Europe. So it's been interesting, it's been varied, uh, and I've retained my energy levels, which, yeah. if I'm being frank, I think would have been harder to do if I would have stayed and, and even attempted to do all the jobs that I was doing mm. in the period, you know, to my retirement. But it does sound that you're not resting on your laurels. I mean, you just reeled off a massive amount of work there. So there's, like you say, real diversity in that, that you can use your previous experience to, to deliver. So it sounds like you're enjoying that. Um, oh, I love variety. it. Absolutely love yeah. it. Uh, you know, uh, still, still dealing with real people, uh, dealing with real issues, regeneration, which, as we all know, is not a quick fix. Yeah. It's long term you know, the role and functionality of the Etihad campus, how we're going to vary and widen the offer, uh, what it means for local people in terms of accessing employment, what East Manchester can become in terms of be, being a, a vibrant part of the regional centre, and what I'm doing elsewhere, which has been interesting, but also intellectually challenging yeah. uh, as well, which is what it's all about, isn't yeah. it? Totally. Do you still have to do five o'clock starts and 18 hour days and seven days a week or have you managed to kind of get a bit? No, 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 I'm working, I'm working bloody hard and hell and ever. Well, because like you, you know, you're stuck, you're chained to a table in the house, aren't you? So you start in work at seven and a half, seven yeah. and you're finishing at seven and a half, seven at nine, yeah. sometimes even later. You know, I've got a, a video called tonight at eight o'clock in different parts of the world mm. uh, because that's that's now part of part of your working life and yeah. you know I don't know about anybody else but when this 
shit shows over, I'm going to be the first to be back in the office. <laughs> my only other problem is that the place where I go and have my glass of wine is now closed. Oh. I'm sure hopefully it'll reopen. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's absolutely gutting, isn't it? So you're an honorary professor of politics at the University of Manchester. And so you're doing a lot of work with the university now, aren't you? Is that is that still yeah. the case? Yeah, working very closely with our esteemed president, Nancy, particularly around the health innovation, the R&D side. I'm on the new company, the Graphene Company, which is really about how we massively improve our investment capabilities, support translational applications, what that can mean for the wider economy, what it means for new business formation and innovation activity. So tremendous opportunities. And again, uh, intellectually stimulating and challenging yeah. and that's going to be the future you know we that we're so lucky in Manchester today because um, you know when I was doing my stuff in the early years um, we were a one-trip pony now mm. our economy is more diversified you know technology diverse companies science creative based activities that is going to stand Manchester in so much good stead yeah. over the next few years as we, everyone has to chart and this is not just a challenge for Manchester every city in the world is going to have to chart mm -hmm. a new direction in responding to the global pandemic yeah as you say we're in a really good place aren't we in terms of bringing mm. in inward investment and retaining talent around the university that's got to be surely one of our kind of roots out of this exactly and and how we boost our science base how we boost our innovation base our creative base and how we continue to innovate mm -hmm. uh, around our housing offer in the way we've done i think very successful there's still gaps in the market which we've got to fill of course and what we can do now in, in rethinking what we mean by mobility. You know, it's not just about the big, you know, modal interventions, mass transit intervention, which as we all know, take years and years to yeah. come to fruition. It's, all the, it's also the smaller grain stuff uh, about how we promote cycling, how we promote car share, how we transition to a zero carbon economy, how we can actually create places which are digitally enabled mm -hmm. to support people access jobs, support people enjoying a lifestyle they want, and ultimately supporting the growth and development of the wider city. Mm. It's really interesting you say that because in a way that's a parallel to the situation before the IRA bomb. So all those conversations and those plans have been put into place and they've been accelerated now, haven't they, through the, the challenges we face with the pandemic? Yeah, and... You know, and, and I think um, there's a real opportunity because of Manchester's innovative approach to change to put ourselves on, on the front foot in all of that. And I have no doubt at all we will be at the forefront of all of that. You know, governments over time might not start off with Manchester at the top of its list of places it's got to support. But it always ends up Manchester at the top of every government's list because it's one of the few places where you deliver. Mm. Uh, and we're all and noisy, wanna, noisy about it as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. So if they want to deliver change, 
then if Manchester's not showing how that change is delivered, it doesn't get delivered. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, ultimately they all, and they all will come back mm-hmm. to the obvious point that you've got to work with Manchester. Manchester has got to work constructively and proactively with government to make sure uh, we continue to flourish. I'm interested in values and it's very important to us at Roland Ransfield. So we have got 15 values that we really try and hold ourselves accountable. Only 15, yeah. And I can, <laughs> honestly, we, some people against the wall and if they can't recite them in order, they're in trouble. But to be fair, we do know them and we've built them together. But you change the business and I do believe that if you've got nothing left, if you've got your values, you're in a good place. You can build back from them. Where would you say that you've developed yours from over the years? And lots of people would say that you've got very strong values and actually can name your values because you've walked the talk, you've done what you said you do over your career. I, look, uh, these personal values, isn't they? Um, you know, my personal values were instilled in me at a very young age by, you know, my family, you know. So for me, community was always very important. I grew up in Cheatham Hill, as you said at the start, so understanding the people around you, seeing um, some who were struggling and seeing it firsthand, the way the system was failing them was a very powerful influence uh, in, in the formative stages of my career. So therefore the essence of public service was always something I was always gonna be attracted to. Mm-hmm. You, you learn more and you mature more as you grow older and you, get experience in, in jobs and doing real things and doing real things it becomes clear that life is not as straightforward as you thought it was going to be um when perhaps you you were slightly more idealistic so you have to balance that idealism with practical pragmatic ways of affecting change um you know graham always said to me uh very i always got on very well with graham he said you know, it's all very well us talking about redistributing wealth, but if there's no wealth to distribute, then we're all wasting our time, aren't we? <laughs> uh, so how we create jobs and create yeah. wealth in an economy was always a prerequisite, uh, not just for driving um, what some would say is a, a socialist or labour way of doing things. It's also a very practical way uh, of doing things uh, as well. So being collaborative, I think it's important. Taking people with you. People always said, well, Howard, he's got a very strong view about everything. Right, we're going to do this now. Mm -hmm. But unless you take people with you, you you can't do anything, really. It's that talk about it. and, And ultimately, it's about delivering change. Uh, we can't always deliver everything we want because of the system of government in this country, uh, very highly centralised, which has always driven me to around the devolution agenda, which we ultimately got traction with government uh, over. But, you know, it's a sense of community, being collaborative, uh, uh, taking people with you, and also being open, credible, and, and always acting, I think, with integrity. I think people might not always agree with what I ever said, uh, but I don't think they could ever go away from a conversation and not feel 
uh, well, the guy's sincere in what he's saying, yeah. pretty belief that, yeah. uh, and, and he's, he's a guy of integrity. Definitely. I mean, that that's definitely said about you, and, and that resonates completely. I mean, obviously, Manchester is a city that's known for getting on, and so we so were you, certainly, at the City Council, not procrastinating. And there are so many people that I know in Manchester that have told stories of, of sitting outside your door and practising the pitch, and they ask to come in and ask you for something... <laughs> something major and being like really nervous about it because that big initiative or development you know a yes from you means that 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 could potentially get the green light so was it always part of your makeup or your your drive I suppose to be very clear and to make decisions quickly and then stick by them I think there's a way of actually behavior I can remember many situations where uh, I met people and they introduced you know, some ideas, proposals to me, which surprised me. No one could ever say, I never, you know, he's a guy always in his feelings. (laughs) I (laughs) would say what I think. Uh, And quite a lot of the time it was, oh, that's really interesting, actually. (laughs) Not really thought about that. Um, And, you know, let's get back to you. Uh, Because if there were things that were slightly unconventional, then we needed to look at those things very, very carefully. But, you know, I never, I don't think, I hope I never actually made a decision without thinking through what the impacts of that proposal would be on, mm. on the city yeah. and the people who lived and worked there. Mm. You know, I can remember lots of occasions where people were, came in to try and persuade me to do something which I didn't think was right. Uh, I was very open in explaining why I didn't think it was right. Mm. When we developed spinning fields, uh, you know, um, there was lots of land in that area, uh, which was earmarked for residential development. And we said, no, there's not gonna be any more residential development in that part the city centre, other than the plot we'd identified near the river. Why? Because Manchester also needs to be a place where business is transacted, where people are employed. Otherwise, there won't be any demand for people to live in more and more housing within the city centre. And, you know, we, we did fall out with several people at different stages in the evolution of that, of that strategy. But I think most people recognise the reason why we did fall out. I remember Mike Ingle coming off the train and came to our office at the time that was on Portland Street. And we sat around a table and we were bouncing ideas around. It was going to be the new quarter, spinning fields was an option. I remember that. It was to stand at the top of Manchester House. I remember looking at what was there and there was the map that Mike had put there. And we just going, how on earth? You know, and like now you would never have known it's been any different, really. It was the incredible rate of change. It was, but it was also the result of a very, very hard-headed assessment of what was right and wrong mm. with the city centre. You know, we, we were very heavily constrained in the core around commercial development. We had lots of wonderful buildings, but they were incapable of providing the floor plate, which the modern occupier demanded yeah. to achieve efficiency. Uh, and our only chance as a city to actually develop that commercial offer at that stage was spinning fields. And the proof in the pudding was, was in the eating. And, the way in which that has become 
the natural home for a whole range of commercial and professional services, uh, which have expanded considerably as a result of being there. And interestingly as well, the, the way that the diversity of that offer has changed to bring in more technology-based yeah. companies as well. Yeah, yeah, it does feel like a real kind of totally new neighbourhood of the city. So one of our values is leaders create leaders. And I wonder what you've learned about yourself as a leader over your career. I, I think, I don't, you know, I don't really think about it that much, if I'm being really frank with you. Um, I think uh, my management style is probably a bit odd. Uh, <laughs> It's not very, I don't think it's pretty conventional. Uh, um, You know, it's uh, how you actually differentiate between leading and doing, you know, all my instincts have always been to do. do. Uh, (laughs) And working with groups of people, different stakeholders, cajoling them, leading them, trying to make it their idea as much as as mine. You know, that's part of leadership really nowadays isn't it uh, yeah, it's very very rare that you're in a an all-powerful uh position where what you say goes and as a result of what you said something happens mm. you know indeed saying what you want to do is just the start of a very long journey yeah. in yeah. in cajoling and promoting and securing collaboration and participation in the evolution and execution of that strategy. Mm. So leadership is, you can't turn it on and off. It's a constant. It's a constant of remorseless, resilient, patience Mm. and endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, bringing people along with you, that's the key, isn't it? Of course it is. Yeah, Yeah, well, I think so. Um, You know, people associate me with lots of things, but what I can assure you, whatever has happened in Manchester, there's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears from a lot of people to make all of that happen. Definitely. And somebody said to me recently, what was your big break? And I said, I've never had a big break. It's the big stuff. If you think it's big stuff comes from doing all the the small things every single day. It's every day you get up and you go into Manchester over your career and just moving the needle. That's when stuff happens, doesn't it? There's no big kind of fireworks that go off. It's just all the small things that you need to do, which sometimes can be quite boring. They don't feel that you're achieving too much, but it's that consistency, I think, and, and galvanising yeah. other people to help you to get to that point. Exactly. And and being, and, you know, and, and taking the knocks, and we've had them uh, over the years and, and working out, well, how do I reinvent that? How do I develop an alternative strategy for achieving the, the same outcome or a similar outcome? Um, that's also part of leadership and kind of refining that stuff I think learning as you go are are there any of our values I don't know if a chance to read them that kind of stand out for you as yeah making Dransfield making Dransfield a better place yeah Uh, I think that applies particularly for any place leader or sees himself as having or herself as a as a role in leading place the legacy of of leaving it better than what you inherited at the start is mm. by definition quite an important part of the story. Though I have to be say that, you know, from the mid-70s, it, it wouldn't have been very hard to make Manchester a better place considering <laughs> what what was there at the time. Its great strength, of course, was its people, the, the attitude of, of many people, but 
we lost our way, I think. We, we never really responded to um, globalization. That wasn't just something uh, exclusive to Manchester, but um, it, took us, it took us several years mm. more to, to really develop a strategy for, for transition in the city, mm. post-industrial mm. Manchester. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform. Thank you. And the other thing that we talk about is purposeful relationships. I'm interested to kind of see how much importance you place on these. And I've got a story that I've got to tell it. I've told it twice on We Built This City already, but I can't not tell it because it's about you. So I was on a train going down to London I think it was my first meeting after that horrendous 2008 crash where it was very dark days and I was still in my seat and you walked down the aisle as we, we pulled into Euston Station and you saw me and you said, how are you doing, love? Good on you for keeping going and you'll get through this. And it was so important to me that and well, I was honoured that you remembered my name in 2008 because there was so much going on, but it kept me going for several years. I really felt that that was such Mancunian spirit that I felt on that day and I think I've only got you on here today so you can tell it you can say it to me again actually because I need I need a bit of encouragement right now but you've been that person that for so many people in there to give um, reassurance and structure and decisions and I know that now some very accomplished people still come to you for counsel on, on big decisions so I just wondered who's been there for you over the years ha yeah well that's a very good question um um family uh, I, I've always been a guy who's had a, um, a small group of people who I share everything with some work colleagues some not work colleagues uh, Graham has always been a, a mainstay in my professional life as has Richard yeah. so many a time you know if I had a real problem I put my head around Richard's door and say, can I have five minutes? You know, and we might have 20 of those a week and then for weeks not see each other at all. Uh, so that's part and parcel of having grown up professional uh, relationships. But um, ultimately, it's down to you, really, isn't it? Uh, you've got to make it work, not, not just because of yourself, but also what people let's of you and and because that was the role that people saw in me which I was only happy to discharge it you know it also built up the pressures over a 20-year period yeah. to keep to have to do that yeah uh, and therefore at one level you know when you when you say well how did I feel when I walked out of the town hall there there are obviously some regrets you can't give your life to an institution like I did for four, over 40 years and not feel something. Uh, but also there was a sense of relief as well. I could just do things for Howard rather than do things because everybody else wanted me to do it for them. Yeah, that expectation is such a pressure, isn't it? It must have been yeah. a relief for you. So, I mean, what now for Manchester? I mean, you literally helped us to rebuild the city after the IRA bomb and then all the other work that came with that afterwards. 
we're not going to rebuild it now with bricks and mortar, but how do you think as a city that we're going to be able to rebuild it now? I'm focusing on, on what we're good at. As I've said before, you know, some of the great opportunities for resurging economies now are all particular strengths of Manchester, mm. you know, our health innovation system is one, you know, our creative uh, industries, our, our science, our indeed based industries, you know, global Britain, even if you believe all of that, <laughs> is about how you develop new trade and international investment uh, strategies, build around distinctive sectors of industrial activity. Well, Manchester's got that in spades. In a way, we never had 20 years ago, uh, in my view. So we now have that diversity. We now have that scale. We now have the opportunities to build on that, to exploit the academic excellence uh, of our institutions, the diverse nature of our business space, the opportunities to create even more technologically diverse companies. And crucially, the ability, I think, given government policy, which has to change about how we connect our young people to jobs and to pathways to skills development and employment. And the, the national centralist model is now under more threat than it's ever been because it can't deliver anything, can it? It can't deliver a test and trace uh, system, uh, you know. So we, we're going to have to rethink what we mean by, if not devolution, but new partnerships around place-based settlements between the centre uh, and local government. Uh, and I think that's a debate that's long overdue, and I think it's a debate uh, which, once it starts to take place and gather momentum, will always put Manchester at the forefront of that change. Um, I think there's also a lot of pent-up demand. You know what? You know, of course, there's going to be lots of people who have been squeezed out of employment, but there's also a lot of pent-up demand within the economy. And, you know, getting back to some degree of normality, uh, whether it's just before or after uh, Christmas, you know, securing access to vaccines, uh, which will actually support that process of transition, I think will result in lots of people. You know, I'm not one of these people. Oh, people won't want to go back and work in the city centre because they like being at home, do they? <laughs> Damn, one thing, I've not met any bloody one of <laughs> Yeah, if I'm being really proud. I'm yeah. sure there are some people who, because of lifestyle choice and, and all sorts, see a degree of flexibility. Well, that's fine. They could have done that anyway, if yeah. I'm being honest. Yeah. You, know, you know, technology has demonstrated you can do that uh, effectively. But for the most part, you know, I'm one of these people who genuinely believes the first opportunity people get, they're going to be wanting to be back in the offices. They're going to want to be networking with people uh, again because that's the lifeblood yeah, of society. And, and it's what underpins, you know, business success and high quality mm. of personal uh, satisfaction. Mm. So, you know, there's going to be a downturn, you know, but that's not just going to apply to Manchester. It's going to apply to most of the Western 
world. Uh, uh, but if we have the right economic management policies, the right fiscal priorities over the next six months, Manchester will be, in my view, very comfortably uh, at the head of that queue of being the national engine of growth. That's very, very positive to hear. I think everyone needs to hear that. And if you had some words of encouragement to people listening to this now who are perhaps feeling that they need some hope, what would you say to them? We're not, um, we're not in this by ourselves. This is not a personal thing, you know, the, the UK, uh, some of it self-induced, you might argue we've got big challenges, but we will get through this. And what we've all got to do as well is not just think positively and confidently, We've also got to all play a part in this debate about how we actually influence national policies, which are a reflection of the priorities of places like Manchester and towns and, and, and other places in, in the north of England. Yeah. We can and need to see more investment in our transport, more investment in our R&D. If we are going to level up, unless we see significant increases uh, in transport investment and in R&D and innovation activity, as well as more customised arrangements around how we support people into jobs, how we support people in our health, social care and widen the impacts of our health innovation system, then we are not going to level up. Mm. So this is a major moment, I think, in, in, um, for the country in terms of delivering uh, a strategy for narrowing economic performance. So, quick fire questions for you. Yeah. So don't need to ask what your football team is because we all know it's Manchester City. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually have a footway link in the academy, don't you, to the Etihad Stadium? Oh, yeah, I do. Your yeah, yeah, your yeah, yeah. To Howard Bernstein Way. So yeah. tell me, why is City so important to you? I've always been uh, I've, I've always been football mad and I've always been a bloke. So, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's been one of my privileges to... Uh, in a way which is completely consistent with the growth and development of the city to have played just a very small part in the growth and development of the football club. Yeah, which has been incredible, hasn't it? In terms of and it's been a, and I'm not saying that because I'm a blue, but it has also been consistently uh, over 20, 30, 40 years, a force for good for the community. Mm, yeah, I agree with that, even as a red. What's mm. the best thing to come out of Manchester? The best thing to come out of Manchester, I think it's wit, it's attitude. You know, sometimes people don't think we're serious. Actually, we are very serious people and we actually do think a lot yeah. as well. Now, again, that's not always a characteristic that associated with Monkey Union. Yeah, I think multitaskers, but you're right. The, the, everybody says about the, the people, the people make the place here, don't they? Yeah. What is your favourite building in the city centre? Town Hall. Absolutely. And what would you order at the chippy? Oh, fish and chips. <laughs> Not many people say that. They don't. Fish, chips and peas. And what should you do on, the, on gravy with it? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I <be> that. <laughs> it is quite a man thing. And what makes you proud to be Mancunian? It's, I think it's cohesiveness. It's multiculturalism. Mm. You know, I said it 
you know, as a Jewish guy, I've never once in my professional life experienced any prejudice. That's quite remarkable, really, isn't it? Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's absolutely true. I'm not, I'm not saying but there wouldn't be some people behind me back who said X, Y, and Z, but certainly not 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 to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I I've always felt Manchester is a very open uh city embracing uh change and diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think that's one of its defining features and one way that continues. My last question I always ask my guests about the legacy. So what do you hope people see as yours? Nothing's impossible, really. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to point to one or two or this and that in their own way. Everything that we've done has its own story. You, you can almost write your book about every, about every particular project. Um, but uh, I think it's fair to say when you put it all together, um, be resilient and, and remain focused and always remember you're as good as your last failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me on We Built This City and I really did want to launch a series with you. So I think it's important for Greater Mancunians and those people who love Manchester and, and this podcast gets listened to around the world, which I'm very proud of. So there's a lot of Mancunian or expats around the world, but for them to stay, take stock of the challenges and also the achievements that we've witnessed and we've gone through over the last 40 odd years. And I think having that encouragement from you right now is really important for people to hear. I'd also like to thank you for the support that you've given my business and to me over the years and the odd kind word of encouragement went a very long way. So thank you so much to Howard. You're very welcome, Lisa. So Howard Bernstein built this city by taking people with him by never hiding his feelings and by being prepared to wash the teacups. And maybe I could say that Sir Howard Bernstein built this city and stopped there. We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Dransel PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years, 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.